your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. If people wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher, what do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Hello, and welcome back to the American Valor Podcast. In this conversation, you will hear Tyler Buckholz and Colin Kirk speak with Mr. Jim Folk, the Vice President of Ballpark Operations for the Cleveland Indians. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mr. Jim Folk. The Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation is pleased to invite you to virtually attend the eighth annual award ceremony on November 19th of 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. In this ceremony, the Bob Feller Foundation will honor recipients from the United States Navy, Marine Corps, Major League Baseball, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and a military child. The baseball nominees in 2020 are Mr. Craig Stammen and Mr. Brooks Robinson. You can register for the free event in advance at activevalorward.org under upcoming events. So today we have the honor of having Vice President of Ballpark Operations for the Cleveland Indians, Mr. Jim Folk, joining us on the American Valor Podcast. Uh, we are actually just talking and he works closely with uh, Bobby DiBiasio, who we had on very early on in this podcast's career. Um, he's also the chairman and CEO of the USS Cleveland Legacy Foundation. Uh, Mr. Folk, thank you for joining us today. Well, Tyler and Kyle, thank you very much for having me. This is... Uh... This is quite an honor and, and a thrill, uh, to be honest with you. So if you wouldn't mind, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I uh, grew up in uh, Chicago, or outside uh, Chicago, and uh, I had the great good fortune uh, in, uh, my freshman year in college to get a part-time job working for the Chicago White Sox, uh, just a part-time uh, uh, game day security guard. Um, and over the course of uh, several years, uh, turned that uh, into uh, what became my career. Uh, I had no plans to do that. It was strictly a part-time uh, college job. I thought I was uh, actually going to go to law school, <laughs> and uh, that didn't quite work out. Um, uh, but it worked out very nicely. About the time I graduated, a uh, an opening, a uh, full-time uh, uh, position opened up as the assistant director of operations uh, for the White Sox. And uh, so I was able to, uh, to pick that up and uh, did that for uh, about five more years. And over the course of that time, I got to get involved with uh, uh, not only uh, game day operations, but also um, budgeting and uh, administration um, as well as uh, several renovation projects that took place. Uh, so uh, in about 1988, um, I left the White Sox, and there was a building down in St. Petersburg, Florida, that was being built actually for the White Sox. There was a thought of uh, them relocating uh, out of Chicago and down into St. Pete. 
Um, that didn't work, but I went anyway. So the White Sox stayed put and they built a new ballpark right across the street uh, uh, on 35th and, uh, and Shields. Uh, and uh, I went down to St. Pete and uh, spent about a year in construction there and then opened that up and we ran that for a couple of years and never got a baseball team while I was there. But uh, we did a lot of concerts and uh, tractor pulls and home and garden shows and a lot of that sort of thing uh, while we were trying to get baseball teams. And we uh, uh, spoke to several clubs, uh, including the Giants, the Mariners, um, I believe the Twins, uh, and two expansion teams. Um, but uh, around about 1992, the Cleveland Indians were building a new ballpark up here to replace uh, uh, the old Cleveland Stadium. And uh, I was very fortunate to have had the right combination of experience that they were looking for. I knew about running in uh, managing a ballpark, as well as having been involved in the design and construction activities. And so came up here in uh, June of 92. I just uh, actually just had my 28th anniversary uh, about two weeks ago. And uh, thought I'd be here for about five years. I thought I would get this one built and opened and uh, then turn it over and go do the next one. But uh, Cleveland... Uh, actually turned out to be really a terrific place to be. So instead of being here for five years, I've been here for 28. Uh, both of my uh, daughters were raised here and uh, uh, it's just been a terrific experience, a great opportunity for me uh, for a whole host of reasons and not the least of which is I got to know Bob DiBiascio and, uh, uh, and Bob Feller over the course of time. You know, I think it's funny that you mentioned how you started working uh, for the White Sox just as a summer job and you're planning on going to law school. I actually worked in the Washington Nationals minor league system on the grounds crew for about five years, and I'm planning on going to law school. But if I could end up being a, a vice president of ballpark operations, I might push, push that aside and, and stick to the grounds crew. So do you, ever, do you ever sit back and look at where you started with the White Sox just as a part-time security guard and then look to where you are now in charge of ballpark operations for a major league team. And does it ever just take your breath away that how far you've come since that original job? Constantly, constantly. You know, there, there was no real path. And um, I do talk to, uh, you know, uh, uh, students sometimes who are pursuing a sports uh, uh, administration or, or uh, you know, one of the sports management programs. And my path is, it's the way people used to do it, uh, but certainly not the way that it happens anymore. There were, I think there were two programs when I, uh, 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 in the early 80s, I think St. John's had one and Ohio U, I believe, had one. And that was about it um, for, uh, you know, sports administration programs, um, or at least the ones that were focused more on, uh, on the facilities as, as I had uh, uh, kind of aimed myself. Um, and uh, one of the, th I, I say this without any irony whatsoever, I have never worked a day in my life, because I have been able to do something that I love doing. Uh, and I work with people that I really enjoy working with. Um, I had no inclination when I went into it to start of what any of it really involved or entailed. Um, and uh, most of what I learned was on the job training. Um, and I was, I was just absolutely blessed. I have had a, uh, a couple of uh, bosses, supervisors who really guided me along the way. Uh, my boss with the, the White Sox and a fellow named David Schaefer, um, his father, was uh, Rudy Schaefer, who was Bill Veck's partner going back to, I believe, the late 30s or early 40s uh, with the old Milwaukee Braves. And uh, Rudy was running uh, the Braves organization. Bill Veck bought the team, kept Rudy on as his partner. 
And from then on, uh, they were together. So um, uh, the Braves and then the St. Louis Browns, the Cleveland Indians, the White Sox uh, in the late 50s, and then again in the mid-70s, um, and they were connected. And, and uh, David Schaefer ran the uh, Comiskey Park uh, for about, oh, might have been about 40 years or so, maybe not quite that long. I guess it probably was. He's retired now, but uh, um, he became a mentor to me and provided me with opportunities that uh, I never could have hoped for um, and really gave me the the sense of, of how important the work that we were doing uh, really was. Um, you know, I, I, I often say to people that we can't do anything about how the team performs on the field. Uh, we can't do anything about the wins and the losses, but we can do absolutely everything to affect how you enjoy your experience at the ball game, at the ballpark. And uh, if we're doing our jobs right, nobody knows we're there, but we make you want to come back again. And that's not just us individually. There's a team of people who are uh, working hard every day uh, make sure that the ballpark is clean and safe and friendly. And we've got, uh, you know, the beer is cold and the hot dogs are hot and uh, the ushers are all smiling and the security guards are uh, efficient in how they're handling things. And so it, it, it really takes a, a whole team of people working together. And that's one of the things that I found fascinating in the early days when I was working there was just how much coordination was required. And, you know, I like to do puzzles. And this is really kind of doing a puzzle. Uh, although you're doing it with a, a staff of a thousand and, uh, you know, 45,000 fans uh, every day. And you've got to make sure that all the pieces fit together properly. So to your original question, I, I, look, I think daily, and this is 40 some years now that I've been doing this. I think uh, just constantly on how blessed I've been, how fortunate I've been, uh, you know, I, I could not imagine doing anything different. And so when I tell you that I've never worked a day in my life, I, I mean that sincerely. It's, it's uh, I look forward to going in. Uh, this shutdown has uh, been driving me crazy <laughs> because uh, you know, my office uh, is about 10 feet away from the uh, kitchen table uh, for the last couple of months. And uh, while I'm able to get in to do some things uh, and to take a walk and look around the park uh, uh, fairly frequently, it's not nearly as often as, I'd, uh, as I would like to do. As you said, if you're doing your job properly, I mean, people don't even know you're there. Uh, what is the responsibility of the vice president of baseball operations that maybe people don't know about? Well, in my case, uh, we oversee the entire physical plant of the, of the building. So I've got the maintenance and custodial you know, housekeeping uh, pieces of it. Uh, we oversee any renovation projects, any uh, capital improvement projects. Um, at the same time, we've got all of the front-facing folks. So uh, the security guard that you see uh, who's checking your bag on the way in and the person who's taking your ticket, you know, these days you walk through a metal detector. Those are ours. We've got folks who are inside uh, uh, directing you to your seat. Uh, we've got the people who are cleaning the uh, concourses and the restrooms and the seating bowl. Uh, I have I work with, but not uh, don't oversee the food and beverage folks who are providing the, uh, the beer and the hot dogs and the Pepsi and, and all of the other things uh, that are going on. But then you've also got a lot of exterior type uh, activities that are going on. You know, we deal with the city police, we deal with the with city hall on, on any number of issues. Uh, there's a fair amount of I don't want to call it politics, but politics that go on, you know, that uh, that you need to take care of uh, to make sure that uh, you're working closely with your community. And 
uh, you know, that you're, you're properly integrated into the fabric of the neighborhood. Uh, there are, you know, we're, we participate with the, our local community development corporation called the Historic Gateway Neighborhood Corporation. I've been on their board for several years uh, to make, you know, work alongside them to make sure that we are good neighbors and that activities that we're undertaking are aligned with uh, the things that uh, are bettering the overall uh, neighborhood and, and the community as a whole. You mentioned previously, uh, you don't really, you can't really impact the play on the field. However, I have an idea. I'm an Indians fan. It's been racking my brain since we talked to Buster only, and he said Lindor is going to get traded. Let's take 10% of the concession stands and just funnel it directly into a contract for Francisco Lindor. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I stay out of player relations uh, entirely. <laughs> but, uh, those, there, there are people who are a whole lot smarter than me who, uh, who take care of those things. So uh, you mentioned never working a day in your life. What is your favorite memory uh, while working for the Indians? Was it the 2016 World Series run? Boy, that's a, that's a good one. Let's see here. Well, opening day was in 1994 was phenomenal. Uh, you know, the Indians have played at old uh, uh, Cleveland Municipal Stadium for 60 years, I think. And uh, it was, now I, I, you know, I cut my teeth working at Old Comiskey. So I, I think I'm safe in saying this. That, that place was a dump. Uh, as was old Comiskey, but I loved it dearly. And I understand the, the deep affection that uh, Clevelanders have for that place. Um, but then we came into this brand new ballpark uh, that people had had never really seen before. Um, you know, it was just a couple of years after Baltimore had opened up Camden Yards. And, uh, you know, you had a purpose-built intimate uh, uh, baseball facility, brand new, shiny new. Uh, we had a really good team um, uh, starting in 94. Um, summer of 95, we started a 455-game uh, consecutive sellout streak. I mean, people were excited about uh, this town. So opening day was really spectacular. Um uh, in our, September of 95, we clinched the, uh, the Central Division uh, pennant for the first time, uh, going to the postseason for the first time since 1954. Uh, that was kind of a special night. Uh, the World Series in 95, uh, All-Star Game and World Series in 97, uh, World Series uh, in 2016. One of my all-time favorite uh, memories was the 97 All-Star Game with Sandy Alomar, uh, who hit uh, uh, the game-winning uh, home run, uh, hometown MVP. And I think it was the first time ever uh, that the, the home team uh, had the All-Star MVP. But one of the things, so... So when you were asking before, what, you know, what does the VP of Ballpark Ops do that people don't know about? I'm the local weatherman. Uh, so I'm talking to the, uh, uh, to the national weather people. I talk to local weather people. I've got uh, uh, about 19 different weather apps on my phone. I've got three different radar screens. And uh, in 97, uh, for the All-Star game, we had threatening weather. And this was before, you know, you had the weather channel or, I mean, you didn't have cell phones to speak of, uh, certainly none that had uh, internet capability. And we were, uh, we were coming down to game time and uh, I won't say people were panicking, but there was a lot of concern about getting this game played because there was a, there were forecasts of bad weather coming in and uh uh, a couple of the people from, from Major League Baseball kept running up, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing? And we had a flyover, I think it was by the Ohio Air National Guard. And so they had a guy on the ground by us to coordinate the flyover with the anthem. And uh, he saw all this 
crazy activity. People kept running up. What are we going to do? When's it going to rain? What's, how bad is it going to be? And uh, so he came over and he goes, hang on a second. And he called his pilots and found out from them that we probably had about two and a half hours. Uh, and then the rain was going to come and it was going to rain for a long time. So I was able to take that information, tell Major League Baseball, we got about two and a half hours, let's get this thing going. At the time, it was the quickest all-star game on record. I think it went like two hours and 45 minutes or something crazy like that, in large measure because Sandy hit that uh, the dinger into the bleachers. And uh, about 10 minutes after the game ended, the rain started, and it literally rained for two days after that. But um, I would have said that had uh, Rajay Davis's uh, home run stood up on November 2nd, or into the wee hours of November 3rd of 2016, that that would have been my favorite memory. That didn't happen, so I'm, I'm going to say the 97 All-Star game was Sandy Delamar's home run. Was there any special precautions you needed to take when preparing the stadium for hosting an All-Star weekend? The All-Star game, so this was my third. I, I, I participated in, in 1983 in Chicago, and it was a fairly simple, straightforward thing. I think you had the old-timers old game on uh, Monday. Uh, you had player workouts Tuesday morning, and then the game's Tuesday night, and that was it. In 97, it had turned into a couple-day affair. They had introduced Fan Fest, which is up at the convention center. Uh, but starting – we had a homestand that ended on Sunday, and then uh, Monday was full of uh, activity. You had, you know, celebrity softball in the morning, and you had uh, player workouts Monday afternoon. And kind of, this was, bef this was sort of the, the precursor of the Home Run Derby, which has just become an event unto itself now. Um, Tuesday, you had a little bit of activity, and then Tuesday night, you had the ball game. Uh, this time, we started planning – almost two full years out and probably 18 months out, uh, we, we were having monthly meetings with Major League Baseball. About 12 months out, they were bi-weekly meetings and uh, uh, by April or May, uh, we, Major League Baseball actually moved a good number of their staff into the park, uh, you know, out of New York and, and into Cleveland. And we were meeting almost daily, uh, preparing for those things. Uh, Fan Fest went from kind of a, uh, a souvenir show at the convention center to occupying almost all of downtown. Uh, there are nightly concerts for starting, I think, on Thursday through uh, Sunday. Um, there are nonstop events at the ballpark that start on Friday. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's a high school um, all-star game, a high school home run derby. Uh, you get the futures game. You get the celebrity softball game. As I mentioned, the home run derby is just a, it's an entire event unto itself. It's as big or bigger than, it, 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 it's almost as big as the all-star game itself. Uh, and then that game. Um, Major League Baseball just does a, a tremendous job of, of pulling resources together. Um, I mean, we were, we were the whole city um, for 10 days, um, uh, you know, and the working together with uh, City Hall, with the building department, because uh, you're, you're, repurposing uh, things or, you know, building temporary structures. Um, you're working with the police department, obviously, and the traffic unit, the FBI, and all of the local and uh, federal law enforcement. Uh, if you have a, uh, a, a protectee, which we did not, you know, the Secret Service gets involved. Um, and... Uh, so the, the planning for it is, is, is really remarkable and very little left for chance. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, they, they put together, 
they being Major League Baseball puts together a really solid uh, plan and then they work alongside of us to execute it. And the end result, I think this was uh, really could not have been much smoother than it was. Uh, the fans loved it. It was a terrific game. Once again, we had the hometown uh, uh, MVP uh, for the game in, in uh, uh, Shane Beaver. And uh, uh, just a terrific, uh, you know, week-long event. Uh, but the planning that goes into it, um, uh, I, can't, I can't even begin to count the number of hours that uh, our staff put into preparing for it and making sure that uh, it was as safe and as enjoyable uh, as it could possibly be. You mentioned a lot of great stories over the last two answers. Um, you also mentioned previously that you had a relationship or at least knew Bob Feller. Do you have any stories about your interactions with him? Oh, Bob Feller. So I'll take you way back here. Um, my dad, uh, born on the north side of Chicago, and uh, not a huge baseball fan, but he, uh, you know, he, he followed the Cubs as you would. Here's my dog here. <laughs> And so, you know, kind of the family joke was when I went uh, uh, to work for the White Sox, he wrote me out of the will. Um, and actually, uh, one of my older brothers and I both worked for the Sox for a while. Uh, but uh, so my dad, not being a huge fan, but uh, he was a Navy guy. And uh, he liked Bob Feller, who had been in the Navy, and he liked Roger Staubach, who had gone to the academy. and. Uh, so when I got the chance to, uh, to come to Cleveland, again, as I mentioned, I, or maybe I didn't, but I came up to uh, uh, be involved with the design and construction of the ballpark, uh, work with the design team and, and the, uh, uh, the folks uh, doing the actual building. In my first year, uh, that, that first summer, I really didn't have too much to do with uh, putting down the games at uh, Cleveland Stadium. Uh, so there's one evening, um, and I had a big set of blueprints, and we had a really small conference room at, the, at Old Cleveland Stadium. Uh, our office space was probably about 10,000 square feet, and we had a lot of people packed in there. But So I had a set of blueprints and, and some uh, red Sharpies, and I was going through, and I was you know, marking up uh, you know, where I thought doors ought to be moved or you know, questions that uh, we had about how you know the design was going and this fellow walks in he's got about three or four dozen baseballs uh, in boxes so he comes down sits down and uh, he starts taking the baseballs out and he starts signing them and of course I knew it was just about feller um, and uh, they starts looking at what you know what are you doing there son and uh, so I showed him I said oh here's you know here's the plans for the new ballpark and uh you know, here's, here's some things here. Oh, where's the clubhouse? So I flip to the page and start showing them where the clubhouse is. You know, my goodness, this is a huge clubhouse. We, you know, we, we don't have club. We never had a clubhouse like this. We, you know, this is, uh, this is like a mansion compared to, to what we're used to. And, and we just start going on and on. And, you know, when I, when I played at league park, we did, <laughs> And suddenly it occurs to me, I'm sitting here talking to the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time and, and a, a Navy hero, you know, a, uh, you've been in the Hall of Fame almost uh, 30 years at this point. And I'm sitting here, you know, rubbing shoulders and, and talking to Bob Feller about how lousy the clubhouse was at Old Yankee Stadium or at League Park in uh, Cleveland or, uh, you know, the St. Louis Browns place was just a, you know, they should have burned that to the ground. And, and, you know, and he just starts going. And the, the, the thing to do with Bob from my standpoint was you just kind of, you, you tossed a softball and then you sat back and you shut up and you let him talk because he would have a story about any subject, any topic. Hey, uh, Bob, uh, what about, uh, what was it like throwing to Joe DiMaggio? Uh, which, you know, and so you'd hear about that, and then that would segue into, 
uh, going out and having dinner with Joe DiMaggio and uh, Marilyn Monroe when they were married. <laughs> and then that story would just go and go and go. Um, but when you, when you really got uh, uh, to something, um, you know, in, in the press dining room years later uh, over at, at the new ballpark, um, you know, a couple of us would usually go up uh, you know, the media would eat first and then some of us would go up after the game got started because we kind of had a little downtime uh, once the game got going for a couple of innings. You go up and have dinner. Well, if there was an open chair at your table, here came Bob and he'd bring his plate over and he'd sit down and you might or might not have to give him something to talk about. Um, sometimes he just would jump right in and sometimes he'd, you know, they ask him about uh, the USS Alabama and Zoom. Away he would go. And a very learned man. But his his stories, you know, they were all very, very genuine. His 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 story is just incredible. I mean, you've got this guy who uh, at 17 is pitching in the major leagues. And his season ends. And he goes back to Van Meter, Iowa, and rides the school bus with his sister, Marguerite, because it's his senior year in high school. And he's already pitched against the New York Yankees. And, you know, his high school graduation was broadcast nationwide on radio. And uh, four years later, he's, you know, he, he's in Chicago to sign a contract for the following year. And uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor happens. And instead of going to his lawyer's office Monday morning to sign a, a, you know, his new contract, that would have made him a wealthier man. And despite the fact that he did not need to enlist because you know, he had a, a deferment because his father was uh, uh, terminally ill, uh, he goes to the, to the recruiting station and enlists in the Navy in the middle of his baseball career and takes four years out of the middle of his career First, first professional athlete to do so, serves admirably, uh, you know, with distinction and honor, and then comes back and has a remarkable career all over again for the next however many years he, he, uh, you know, he pitched after that. And had absolutely zero, uh, um, I don't want to say anger, but, uh, uh, you know, he was proud to have done it. You know, he, he lost probably legitimately a hundred wins on his career uh, by serving in the Navy uh, and not taking a, you know, a, a, any of the deferments that he, that he might've had available to him. And but when you talk to him, he was just so very, very proud of his career with the United States Navy. And his the opportunity for him to have served, you know that that part. I mean, his his story is just just so incredible. Um, but then he would segue into when they were playing in Cleveland. Later, he had a pilot's license and a, a small airplane, and he had a place up in Eagle River, Wisconsin. So they'd play a baseball game on Sunday, and Monday would be an off day. Um, he had a little motor scooter of some sort. He'd ride over to the, from the stadium over to the uh, Burke Airport, fly up to Eagle River, Wisconsin for a day and a half, two days, and then fly back to, to uh, Cleveland and, and go to wherever the team was playing. You know, it just a, just a, an incredibly uh, remarkable, interesting individual who, who could have a story, you know, was friends with, uh, with every, uh, uh, I think every Republican president from, and maybe every president, you know, for 50 years, 60 years, you know, stayed at the White House. At his, uh, at his funeral, uh, Governor Kasich and uh, who, uh, Bob Adelson from the, uh, Adelson from uh, the Hall of Fame, I think Bobby D, uh, you know, all, all eulogized him at his, uh, in his memorial service. This man could rub shoulders with anybody, uh, with presidents and with uh, groundskeepers, and was equally at ease with any one of them. Um, just a terrific, uh, 
person and uh, uh, the time that I spent with him, and I, I, you know, I can't say that we were close personal friends or anything like that, but the time that I was able to spend with him was always uh, time well spent. I was always very happy and, and glad for it. Yeah, and Bob Feller said uh, his, the greatest team he ever played for was the U.S. Navy, and I think everything you touched on are, are reasons why Colin and I both joined the foundation and found his story so inspiring. Um, so tailoring off of that, you work with, you're on the board of directors, you're the chairman and CEO of the uh, USS Cleveland Legacy Foundation. What drew you to that foundation? Um, well, a lot of it comes back to, uh, to Bob Feller. Um, uh, but I'll dial it back a little bit further. I mentioned my dad was a Navy guy. Actually, uh, during the Second World War, uh, he went through a, a program they called the V-12. It was basically college and medical school combined. And it was a, uh, um, he was a Navy ROTC on a, uh, actually it's this coming weekend. And uh, this weekend in uh, 1949, on Friday, he graduated from med school. On Saturday, he married my mom. And on Sunday, he got his commission in the Navy. And uh, so he was in the reserves and uh, that was in 49, he was doing uh, 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 his surgical residency at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And uh, in 52, um, he got called up for active service uh, because of Korea. And uh, so he went uh, over to uh, Korea with the three seven Marines and was a battalion surgeon for um, uh, about six, eight months, and then became the commanding officer of the Easy Medical Company for uh, several more months. Uh, Easy Med was the Navy slash Marine Corps version of mass units. Um, so there were the, the Marine Hospital and uh, the Navy supplies the docs and dentists and priests and uh, uh, to the Marines. Um, we had that, uh, so I've always had a, a great uh, admiration and respect for the military and the Navy and, and Marine Corps in particular. So in 2012, we had Marine Week Cleveland, um, and it was an opportunity for the Marines to um, really showcase all that is great about that service. And uh, so it was a week-long uh, set of events that uh, was bookended with uh, a homestand. We played the Pirates on the uh, the closing weekend. We had Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps uh, Barrett through a ceremonial first pitch on Friday. And somebody who became a very good friend of mine, uh, Sergeant Major uh, Michael Burke, who was Sergeant Major of the 325, which is the local reserve unit, uh, on Saturday. So anyway, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, coordinating between the city and the Marine Corps and the Indians because of all the different activities that were going on in town. And uh, so I was the, uh, the logistics guy on all that. Sure. So at that point, it kind of became uh, you know, one of the, the Indians' point of contact uh, uh, with the military in, in, uh, in Cleveland. Shortly after that, the uh, start of the Bob Feller uh, Act of Valor, and I had the opportunity to go there uh, to the inaugural event. I, I was uh, uh, very proud to have been Ann Feller's escort during that. Bob DiBiasio was on the board and was the uh, master of ceremonies, and Ann uh, was able to be there, and so I went uh, to help her along and at that time, we met uh, uh, Secretary, then Secretary of the Navy, uh, Ray Mavis. And uh, so there was a lot of back and forth about, um, uh, you know, who the fan, you know, who uh, who the teams were that people were rooting for because you're in both in Washington. So between the Nationals and the Orioles, and then of course there's always some Yankees fans uh, running around. Ray Mavis, the, the SECNAV, uh, made mention that he had thrown out a ceremonial first pitch at 29 major league ballparks. And there was one that he had missed. 
and that happened to be ours. So we decided at that moment, Bobby D <laughs> extended the invitation at that point. So uh, very long way of getting around to the next uh, year, uh, Sucknav Mavis came, threw out a first pitch, and we won that game. Actually, he, would, he threw out several first pitches over the course of time, and we were undefeated when he was uh, on the mound. So that just, what, we had a Navy week pop up after that. And uh, so at that point, I coordinated that and got to know a young man named uh, Matt Previtz, who is a uh, uh, reserve lieutenant in the Navy. Uh, just uh, uh, this week, uh, deployed uh, active to Afghanistan for uh, some amount of time. Um, but uh, so got to know Matt because he had brought some, he was uh, a local liaison. So as Navy brass came to town, SECNAV and that sort of thing, he kind of coordinated on the ground for them. So Matt and I got to know one another. The undersecretary of the Navy, Tom Mobley, who was a um, uh, uh, Cleveland Heights uh, resident, or uh, uh, was born and raised there. And then uh, uh, he came uh, to a game. There was another Navy week activity going on summer of 17. And uh, so Previtz had brought uh, undersecretary of uh, uh, over and you know we showed them around, showed them our Bob Feller uh, uh, museum at Progressive Field, and uh, uh, shortly thereafter in October we had a it was unfortunately just one uh, game in the postseason against the Astros, um, but uh, the Secretary of the Navy gets to name ships. So this is really a long, complicated way of getting around to it. SACNAV gets to name ships. He gave Undersecretary Modley uh, uh, the opportunity to name a, uh, an LCS littoral combat ship, uh, the USS Cleveland. And uh, he did so at uh, uh, the USS Cod, which is a retired World War II sub uh, that's permanently moored uh, on Lake Erie here in Cleveland. And uh, so he named the ship USS Cleveland. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Lieutenant Previtz asked if I would uh, consider joining the commissioning committee. So in shipbuilding, you you have the keel lane and then you build the ship. And then when she's seaworthy, uh, you have the christening and she slides down the ways into the water. You break the champagne bottle and all. Uh, and then you continue to upfit, and then you do sea trials, and then there's the commissioning where you, the ship becomes an official uh, part of the, of the Navy. And uh, uh, so we were going to participate in the commissioning of that ship. Uh, and it's, you know, there, there's recognition of uh, the ship and the, more particularly the crew. Uh, as and you look to send the ship off uh, with a good start. Now, one of the things, this is the fourth Cleveland um, in the last hundred or so years, uh, but the first one that will ever have visited Cleveland itself. Um, the first one was a uh, cruiser, uh, I think laid down in 1903, or commissioned in 1903, and served during the First World War. Uh, and then the next one was uh, light cruiser, uh, served with great distinction during the Second World War, the CL-55. Uh, there are two, or as of uh, the last I heard, there were two survivors uh, from the CL-55, the World War II ship. Uh, and then the more recent one was LPD-7. Uh, that was a, a marine amphibious landing dock. Uh, she was uh, based in San Diego, uh, but uh, so none of these ships ever made it uh, to Cleveland, never made it into the Great Lakes. Um, and we do have a little bit of a connection with the LPD-7, the previous uh, Cleveland, uh, through a lot of different uh, 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 intersections. So this ship, the LCS-31, littoral combat ship, um, 
uh, will be the first Cleveland to, to visit Cleveland, uh, which makes it kind of special. It's not the only time you will, uh, you know, that a ship uh, is christened or uh, commissioned uh, in her home port or, or, or the city for which she's named, but it's not a common or an everyday occurrence. Um, so uh, Lieutenant Pravitz and uh, a number of other folks that he had gathered together, including me, started to look at how could we put together a really special uh, commissioning in Cleveland for a ship named for Cleveland. And um, that then kind of morphed into the idea of, well, very often a commissioning committee is set up just for that, for a week or so worth of activities. And then the ship leaves and you wave goodbye from the dock and that's about it. Um, and so we thought, well, we being uh, Matt Previtz, I mean, this is he really, he's kind of the driving force behind all of this. Um, so the idea then became, well, you know, she's going to serve for 20 some years. Wouldn't it be great if not only do we send her off uh, with a, you know, with the best possible uh, uh, commissioning uh, functions, wouldn't it be great if we also made that connection with the ship while she serves for 20, 25 years. Um, make sure that the, the sailors aboard ship know about Cleveland and know, you know, where the, the, the great things about this area, Northeast Ohio, and the, you know, the tremendous history of this place, and that they have a sense of uh, ownership uh, of the ship and and uh, and you know a permanent sense of the community uh, back here and that you know so that Mrs. Smith's third grade class adopts a sailor for example and can we uh, you know take some effort to recognize promotions and birthdays and anniversaries and babies and all those sorts of things and can we make sure that, uh, you know, when she deploys and when she returns, that there's some, you know, recognition from the city of Cleveland? Um, you know, ships take on uh, personalities. And, um, you know, we want that personality, personality to reflect uh, Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. And then the next step said, well, you know, if she can go out through the Great Lakes and out the, the St. Lawrence Seaway, there's nothing that says she can't come back this way either. And wouldn't it be great at the end of her service life if we could bring her back here and have her as a permanent monument and educational resource, uh, again, here on the shores of Lake Erie, uh, uh, you know, at North Coast Harbor by where the USS Cod is moored. And uh, uh, so that's now, so we, we, we turn this, uh, you know, four or five days worth of uh, celebration and, and activities surrounding sending the ship off to sea to sending her off to sea uh, maintaining that connection the entire time she's out and then bringing her back home when, uh, when her service life is done. Uh, so we have a, uh, a board of directors. Uh, our ship sponsor is uh, Mrs. Robin Bodley, um, who is just a, an incredibly uh, uh, gracious lady who happens to be uh, married to uh, former Undersecretary of the Navy, Tom Moldley. Uh, so we are actively working to uh, develop the plans that will be uh, part of the commissioning, the service life, and the return of the uh, of the USS Cleveland. I was just going to say that's great what you guys are doing uh, for Cleveland as well as for the USS Cleveland. Um, and then I think we have one final question. 
Um, sure. What is a piece of advice you'd give to anybody who's looking into getting into baseball operations? You know, it is for me, and again, I had absolutely zero intention of pursuing this as, as a career. Uh, even while I was, you know, first early doing it, and while I was in college, I, I thought it was, you know, it was a pretty nice part-time job and, uh, you know, paying my rent and buying my books and that sort of thing, but uh, it wasn't what I want, you know, it, it, I didn't expect that this was what I was going to do. Um, I think whatever you do was I is I try and, and think you know the the advice for getting into ballpark or sport you know uh, ballpark operations or into sports management um, you know whatever you do you gotta love it uh, too many people go through the motions or or just don't have the opportunities to get that dream job and uh, but whatever you do. You gotta love it because uh, the, the way to do your best is is to you know really engage yourself and and go all in on on your career. What I see is the 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 folks who I think do the best, especially in my end of the world, in, in the facility side of it, in the uh, in the in the operations part of it. Is you gotta, you have to be ready to start at the bottom, and recognize that there is no job that's beneath you or is too small or that you don't think you should be doing or should have to do. Um, you know, I, I started as a security guard. I took tickets. I learned how to drive a forklift because somebody needed to drive a forklift at some point. Uh, I can push a broom. Um, I can, you know, move equipment if I have to. Uh, my my involvement on the uh, administrative part of things was uh, I had taken one accounting course in college. Uh, my boss at the time was working on his budget for the upcoming year, and I looked over his shoulder, asked what he was doing, and and asked if I could help got into it. Now, this was in 1981 or two, probably. We didn't have the, uh, you know, we were working on a calculator and uh, a of, uh, you know, big piece of graph paper. We're lining out the schedule. You know, we, we would uh, uh, use a calculator and a big piece of graph paper and plot out the schedule and then how many ushers it was going to take and how many security and how many cops and how many janitors and, uh, and that sort of thing. And then you'd run the, you know, the calculator tape and you go, nope, too much money. And then you'd have to go back and start. Okay. Well, we said it was going to be uh, 125 ushers. I guess it's 110. You'd erase that. And then you go back to your calculator and that sort of thing. But point being that, you know, that ground up, uh, ground level uh, type of effort, I think is really important. I think that being able and being willing to take on any challenge that comes your way, any, it, it, they're all opportunities. Um, and, have, you know, so in my case, as I had mentioned, I had a mentor who turned into a, a great friend, but he was a great teacher, gave me great opportunities along the way. And as I showed that I, I was able to take on a task and do it well, uh, then he'd give me more responsibility. So suddenly if we had, uh, you know, a, it sounds like a small thing, but, uh, you know, we had a high school baseball uh, uh, tournament. Say, okay, this is yours. You go, you, you go manage this thing. And instead of going, oh, no, I can't do this. Oh, yeah. No, it's okay. Well, I need to talk to the coaches or the athletic directors and figure out what the schedule looks like. And then I need to decide how many staff I need in here to do these things and work out all the bits and pieces, you know, which is a smaller version of, of what I'm doing today. But I had that opportunity to do those things. But I think part of the key was to actually do them and to constantly ask, okay, 
I got this one. What's next? What's my next opportunity? What can I do to help you that will help me learn? Uh, how can I get better at this? How can I uh, hone my craft? Uh, you know, how can I get better educated? Now, again, uh, the, the technology that we use today compared to back then, um, you know, when we opened uh, Progressive Field, uh, our video coaching was a guy with a VHS camera and a tripod at the end of the dugout. And he had a, a, a recorder that you could watch, um, you know, after the game was over to look at your at-bats. I mean, now we have something that, uh, you know, it seems like uh, almost television science fiction. The amount of equipment and the ability that we have to break down a pitcher's, uh, he can look at his release point, you know, frame by frame, second by second, or, you know, and to, and to see, you know, maybe he's dropping his shoulder early or, you know, a hitter who can do that same thing and, and can find out that he's got a hitch in his swing or he's, you know, he's pushing his knee or his hip out, you know, uh, and those kinds of things so that they can constantly get better at what they're doing. We try to do the same thing on our side. So where for a long time it was experience and intuition and, uh, you know, I'm not sure this is going to work so well. Uh, now we're, we're able to work with our analytics folks uh, to do uh, surveys and studies to tell us what, uh, you know, here, here, I think this is how we want to do it, but can you help us figure out, you know, uh, can you help us prove this and either prove it, you know, to the good or to the bad. And, uh, you know, so that mixture of uh, old school and, and modern technology and combining them to always make yourself better for, um, you know, for the fans and for the organization. Um, but back again to your original question, because I, uh, I think just the, the willingness to take on any opportunity and any challenge and not to look at it as, as a, a chore or a problem, but as an opportunity to learn something new and to do something different uh, and to gain some experience that you might not otherwise have. Uh, I think that's absolutely critical uh, to do. And to, again, to recognize there is no job beneath you. There is nothing that you can't or shouldn't do uh, because you have a title of some sort. Uh, and, you know, as a supervisor, as a leader, you want to make sure that you're empathetic to uh, the folks who, who are, are working for you who are making you successful. And you want to make absolutely certain that if you're asking them to do a job, it's something that you either have done or can do and in a pinch will do. And... Uh, you know, you need to, to, to understand what they're going through. You know, you don't necessarily have to be their friend, but you have to understand the challenges that they're facing. And you also have to make certain that you are providing them with those opportunities that are going to make them better. So anybody that you hire, you should be hiring to take your job uh, at some point and to replace you. And I think if you are a good manager, a good leader, a good supervisor, uh, your, your job constantly is to make those people better so that they can replace you at some point. That's going to make them better. It's going to make you better. And uh, you're going to make your organization better. And the other part, you know, you, it, you're going to learn some things along the way. And you, you will find out that you know, those folks that uh, uh, are, are reporting to you, and again, who are making you look good on a daily basis, probably have some pretty good ideas that are going to, that if you listen to them and you take the time to understand them, uh, chances are pretty good that, that you are going to get better along the way. So there's really no end to learning at this. Um, 
you know, for over a hundred years, uh, the, the job that I do was pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, you open the park up, you let them in, you sold them some beer, some hot dogs, some Pepsi, a t-shirt. Uh, they watched the game, you sent them home, you washed down the ballpark and you did it all over again tomorrow. And I have seen in my career, the change of that, you know, club seats and suites, um, you know, and all those sorts of things that came in. The, it was radical when we opened the ballpark, <clears throat> we had uh, uh, our turnstiles had ticket readers, kind of like a, in a subway where you would feed the ticket and it would read it and release the arm and let the person through. Um, we have not had turnstiles in probably 15 years because we scan tickets. We don't even tear tickets anymore. And now you don't even have tickets for the most part. We're going to, uh, we're, we're really trying to go 100% mobile where your ticket is on your cell phone. Uh, you know, so that evolution took place pretty quickly. Uh, you know, used to be Bill Vec had the exploding scoreboard and that was really something remarkable. Um, now, uh, you know, you look at the, the scoreboards we have are better than the televisions most people have in their living rooms and, and not to mention, you know, a hundred times as big, but you know, the resolution and the display is so much better. The way uh, fans enjoy the game. This is something I really find uh, kind of remarkable and it's probably in the last 10 or so years, you know, so go back uh, the early, you know, late seventies, early eighties, when suites and club seats started to become a thing uh, and, and became a requirement. But then you still, you know, you go up to 1992 and Camden Yards opens up and now you've redesigned the building. So it looks like something that was built in 1892. Um, but it has modern amenities and wide comfortable seats and uh, wide concourses and, and the concessions and all that sort of thing. And then go another 20 years ahead. And now the way people watch a ball game has significantly changed. So where it used to be, you wanted a seat that looked at the at home plate and looked at the scoreboard, and you got your scorecard and you came in and you had your you know, your your food and beverage options, and you wanted to have a comfortable seat. Well, now, uh, you know, standing room and social gathering places are the big thing. We did a uh, uh, started about uh, five six years ago. Did some major major renovations and. Uh, took out uh, uh, close to uh, 10,000 seats, replaced a lot with standing room only, replaced with uh, open bars and, and uh, open concept uh, uh, food stands and that sort of thing, because people were coming more as a social event than coming to the ball game to sit down and watch it, maybe with uh, their, you know, their buddies or their family uh, but now it's coming to meet people, you know, instead of going to a bar or a park or something else, they're coming down to our place. You know, there's a ball game in the background, but it's more about that social interaction. And so uh, the, the things that we have to do in order to uh, remain relevant um, have really been very remarkable. Uh, and again, over about the last 10 years or so. So, you know, you look back a hundred years and yeah, it was all pretty much the same sort of thing. Uh, they looked a little bit different, but they were all uh, basically the same concept. And now you're turning the whole thing around to uh, more of a social engagement uh, area and, uh, you know, Wi-Fi and, and those sorts of things. Again, none of that, you know, I'm not sure Wi-Fi truly existed uh, at least in the ballpark 10 years ago. And now if you don't have enough to, to service 35,000 people, uh, you're going to get letters. Well, you won't get letters, you get emails or tweets. Uh, so that's, you know, all those sorts of things have changed. But uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure I really answered your question of uh, what sort of advice uh, to get into the business. I would say, 
do everything you possibly can to get take advantage of every possible opportunity. And this is, I think that uh, that's in any endeavor you're going to do. It doesn't matter if it's if it's running a ballpark or building automobiles or uh, being a journalist or whatever. Take advantage of every opportunity that's presented to you and look at it as a chance to get better and to learn more. I think that's, I think that's really great advice. And I think that's something our listeners can take away. Um, and we've really enjoyed talking to you about your career, your stories with Bob Feller and your, and the history of the USS Cleveland. So we'd like to thank you for coming on today and talking with us and sharing, sharing that time. And hopefully we get baseball back and uh, Colin and I can get up to progressive field and hold you to that hot, hot dogs and cold beers. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you both up here, uh, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, but I uh, really enjoyed the time with you and, and uh, very much appreciate uh, the invitation. And of course, the opportunity uh, always to, uh, to talk about Bob Feller is, uh, is time well spent and uh, also to you know, kind of spread the word a little bit about the USS Cleveland and the Cleveland Indians uh, in Major League Baseball. And, uh, you know, we could just keep going on and on and on. Uh, I'm sure your listeners have had more than enough, but uh, I, I really enjoyed this time. And uh, thank you guys for what you're doing and, and for spreading the word as well. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast.